Today on the podcast, Under the Hood gets into Rolls Royce going to the moon. Acura confirms what everybody knows. Haggerty doesn't want you to be a CrossFitter. A road legal Mustang GT3. Donut Media gets e-fuel wrong. And stolen cars for sale at Carvana. Then we'll answer the question, why did speedometers in the 80s only go to 85 miles per hour? Let's start the show. <laughs> Welcome to 91 Octane. I am John, and let's go under the hood. Rolls Royce started building cars, then airplane engines, and now they're going to the moon. Rolls-Royce has received $2.9 million in funding from the UK Space Agency to develop a nuclear reactor for a moon base. So if we had a real-life Iron Man, I guess he'd work at Rolls-Royce. Um, I don't know what other companies are working on nuclear reactors. But this does something, sound like something out of a Marvel comic book. I mean, you're building a nuclear reactor on the moon. Um, and that does make sense for a lot of reasons. But first, let's talk about Rolls-Royce. They are not just an automotive company. And Rolls-Royce that is working on the nuclear reactors doesn't actually have any affiliation with Rolls-Royce Motors anymore. Rolls-Royce started... As a car company in 1904, before they moved into aero engines in 1940, and now working on nuclear reactors, clearly. They're still doing a lot of the a lot of the same things that they've been working on over the years, but they did sell off their automotive division to Vickers in 1980, who then sold it to Volkswagen in 1998, and then Volkswagen immediately sold it to BMW over some settlement that was going on at the time that we don't really have the time to cover. It's a little boring, but you can look those details up. Volkswagen did just hand over uh, Rolls-Royce Motors to BMW. So currently, Rolls-Royce is owned by BMW. Um, and if you're driving or riding in a Rolls-Royce, you are basically riding in a BMW as much as driving in a Toyota Supra is. Uh, riding in a BMW. But anyway, that's sort of the breakdown on Rolls-Royce at this point. Rolls-Royce Motors isn't going to the moon, but Rolls-Royce, now the aerospace company, is going to the moon. And they're getting $2.9 million, and this is in euros, just to build the demo. They're not expected to 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 build out everything, uh, the whole nuclear reactor with $2.9 uh, million. That's going to cost billions of dollars uh, for them, um, which is crazy. I mean, this is a, a massive project just doing it on Earth. Now you have to figure out if, if and if you can how uh, you're going to build a nuclear reactor on the moon um, and, you know, take all that equipment with you. So the project is looking into how nuclear power can support um, a moon base on the moon, right? It's for astronauts to go to and do their experiments and figure out if we can live there if Earth blows up, which we're kind of heading in that direction. The microreactor program could provide power required for people to live and work on the moon. So uh, what this means, and I know this is an automotive podcast, but I thought this was pretty interesting. Um, instead of going to missions on the moon that, you know, can be uh maybe a week or so maybe a little longer based on you know what you're carrying with you now there's potential for astronauts to stay out there for months maybe even years uh you know studying what's on the moon um and if you can do it on the moon it's not going to be much longer before you can start doing it on other planets um that we can reach or at least our can be hospitable uh, for human people. So it'll be interesting to see sort of the evolution of this and, and where this actually goes. Uh, but the fact that we're already thinking of building nuclear reactors on the moon, that's crazy. And then also who decides like if you can do that or not, is it just these governments saying, Hey, you know, we're going to get real estate on the moon. Um, how do you become an owner 
of that real estate? Are you borrowed? Sort of how, I guess, countries here started, right? I mean, some somebody arrives first, they claim that land, and now they have to decide what it's worth. Um, it's going to be interesting to see sort of where everyone lands, right? This is a UK-based company, so it'll be like the moon, Great Britain, or UK. Um and, you know, where will we land once we get there? And it could be that something that we've come up with is already underway, which would be pretty cool. Um, but these automotive companies are sort of stepping out of the automotive side of things and getting into crazy space mission stuff now. Um, the Rolls-Royce Aerospace Company continues to move forward, uh, as well as the Rolls-Royce Motor Company. Uh, but... Of course, that is under BMW, and BMW, as far as I know, has no plans to go to the moon. Now into our next headline, Acura was nice enough to confirm what we already know this week, uh, with the exception of one small detail. So the Acura press room has confirmed that 320 horses fit in the Integra Type S stable. Okay, cool. That pretty much says it's the same motor that's in the Type R. In the, the Type R, it's 315. So really the difference is they gave it a boost of 5 horsepower, which, I mean, you could probably get away with just saying that. They probably wouldn't even need to tune it into the car, right? There's so much variance on what a car can actually do based on atmosphere, based on temperature, based on a variety of different variables that can lead to a five horsepower difference. Um, when they confirm the car, they probably will state what the differences are, what they did to the motor. Um, but it's not, I wouldn't say it's a significant enough increase if they were looking for an increase, right? Which they clearly were since instead of 315, they went to 320. But I mean, I, Feel like at least 15 maybe 20 horsepower would have been nice but then you're kind of chewing into the type r competition i guess and they don't want to do that which makes sense but the only difference we've noticed so far is those five horsepower the torque numbers 310 uh pound feet of torque is exactly the same so the only thing that changes is the horsepower it's still a high revving is what they state. They don't actually give the RPM, but if it's the Type R, like the Type R, it's doing 6,500. Maybe they put it up to 7,000, and that's how they were able to get that 320 horsepower. Uh, but I imagine the RPM, uh, the red line is going to remain at 6,500. In the 2-liter turbo VTEC motor that now seems to be shared uh, in the Integra and the Type R. I mean, they haven't confirmed it outright, but, I mean, it's all but confirmed. Um, the commercial shows the same triple-tipped exhaust from the Civic Type R. They do have, like, a seven-second spot that they put out. Um, and the official reveal will be next month in the Acura uh, Grand, Prix of, Grand Prix of Long Beach. Um, so we will get a lot more details, it seems, in the next in the next month, at least in April. For now, they've really confirmed what everyone has been speculating up to this point, that it's going to share the same power plant as the Type R. There are some differences. The differences, I would say, are fairly negligible. We'll see what performance differences actually come out. Uh, there isn't too much difference in the shape of the body. Um I mean, there is some difference, but I don't know if there's enough um, to yield a significant difference, like, say, on the track or something like that. Um, I, I wonder why these companies are trickling out information. Uh, maybe they're trying to put some distance, or specifically Acura is trying to put some distance between their re release of the base Integra and this release before starting to make more noise. Because I feel like they had they had an opportunity to make more noise, confirm more things um, early on. Maybe they don't have enough to market on. You know, five horsepower isn't that much. Maybe there isn't that significant of a difference from the parts that they're using between the type, the type R and the Integra. I don't know, man. But it's a little odd that they're trickling out information on this um, and not drumming up more noise. Um, I know that when the initial Integra dropped... 
it wasn't well received, at least in my communities, as far as I can tell. But the odd thing is it did win North American Car of the Year. So there's something good about it. I don't know the exact criteria for that award, but if a car is wearing, winning a National Car of the Year award, I got to imagine it's a good car. I don't know, though. So we'll see. Uh, we'll see what, you know, cool tricks Acura does at the Grand Prix uh, this year, next month, um, and see if there are any significant or cool differences on the Integra Type S. It is cool um, to see the car come out, even though I didn't like the base model, and it's very unlikely that I will get one. Um, it's cool that Acura is continuing to explore that. And we sort of knew, I mean, they filed a patent like two three years ago for the type s um but i'm curious what the car actually does you know will it be a a far enough car from the civic type r to warrant warrant its own small community much like the rsx type s did when it came out um that it had a, a a a nice following although that following is long gone at this point the rsx type s is uh, probably not up there in the most desirable Hondas at the moment, and I rarely see them at this point. Sort of gone the way of the Celica GTS, I think it was, yeah. But anyway, let's get into our next he headline. Haggerty is trying to get us away from the slippery slope that vegans and CrossFitters suffer from. One-dimensional characters. Now, I'm not hating. If you like your sport, if you like your diet, promote it to people this is exactly what i do with cars there's no reason for me to do this other than to talk to car people about cars because that's what we like to do and we like to spread that around now apparently there is a line and there are rules to follow when doing this uh, that would sort of take us away from that uh vegan and crossfitter reputation in terms of speaking about your hobbies and Haggerty has stated, being a car person isn't a personality. And I think in my interpretation of that statement, I wholeheartedly agree. It's, it's not. It's a hobby, right? And sort of there are different personalities and behaviors and things within that that can uh, evolve our tastes evolve what we like evolve what we get into what music we play in them what shows we go to do we go to meets do you go to autocross do you go to road racing are you a time trial guy everything that's automotive and automotive adjacent right it's a hobby and our our actual personalities shape how we approach it but they break down three points, actually a few more than three points, but for some reason they categorize them this way, into how to enjoy being a car enthusiast. And I'm not going to read the whole excerpts for each, but I do want to touch on sort of the summary of each and, um, and whether I would agree with it or not. And for the most part, I think we're aligned. But the first one is being a car person isn't a personality and we already talked about that you know owning a particular type of car doesn't determine what kind of person you are or even what kind of car enthusiast you are and the the only the only difficult part i have about this is that memeing and joking in the car community is i would say it's enormous it's uh I think it's a big part of automotive social media presence is sort of memeing about cars. And you could probably say this about really every hobby niche. Um but there's a big population of that and a lot of those jokes do play off of stereotypes. Um you know, BMW drivers uh don't use their turn signals, therefore they're assholes. Uh that's not true of everyone and there's plenty of drivers in other cars that probably deserve that asshole title more than some bmw drivers and some bmw bmw drivers are assholes but it doesn't necessarily we don't need we don't i guess we don't need to adhere to these stereotypes strongly but they're fun 
to joke about. And that's where I disagree with the article because in the article, it sort of goes into like, you know, there are no, all, all these jokes aren't funny, essentially, is what, what it comes down to. And I think it is. I think it's fun to play around uh, with those type of things. It seems like we're uh, losing more and more things to to laugh about. Um, so I'd like to maintain that. Of course, respectfully, right? We're talking about, you know, funny things. If you're over here, you know, making fun of people for their actual personalities, then you can get out of here. Uh, because the next rule that they actually put down, I definitely agree with. Be yourself. Stop trying so hard and just be you. Um, this is a lot easier said than done, especially in the car world. I think in the car world, just naturally, there's a lot of, you know, examples to follow. I wouldn't say there's like people to follow, but examples, right? I mean, like even just modding your car, um, most of the population is at the mercy of whoever is developing parts, right? So at any given point, there's a limited number of modifications that you can do to your cars. So somebody does a front lip that looks really cool. Now they're going to sell a bunch of those. Um, and it's sort of, you know, leading by example type of situation. Um, and so naturally by default, I think within the car community, there is a bit of need to sort of keep up with the Joneses in that sense. Um, you know, a lot more than in other hobbies, I think, um, you know, somebody gets the newest thing, you know, I got to get the newest thing. I'm getting a supercar. You know, there's a, there's a lot of it. You see it a lot, right? You see it a lot. Um, but you don't have to approach car enthusiasm that way. Um, you can be yourself and like the things that you want to like, and you will find, if not a group, um, you know, you will find a few individuals to make a group out of, uh, in the cars that you are interested in. Um, you know, I, I love E36s. I've loved them my entire life since I could drive. Um, and now I have two of them. I do have an E92. I like BMW. You, you could say I'm a BMW guy, but in the past I've always talked about, oh, you know, getting back into Hondas. I have no real allegiance to these different type of cars. I just like to be myself with how I partake in in the community. Um, and I want others to feel the same, right? If you like Jeeps, do the Jeep thing, right? If you like Hondas, do the Honda thing. If you like Audis, go get yourself in an Audi, right? I joke a lot about the Audi versus BMW thing, but this goes back again. These are just, it's just jokes. Um, I'll roll with somebody that drives an, an Audi any day. Um, I just might ask you a few extra questions just to vet you a little bit first. But that was the second one. Now, the 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 third one, um, I also agree with. Make quality friends. Um, you know, as, as you get older, it becomes harder to, to make friends, right? Really, school is super easy. You're exposed to a lot of people. Then you go to college. You're exposed to even more people. And then out of college, you get a job. And then you might go out every once in a while. And that kind of is it at that point. You know, where else are you going to meet people? In the car community, you're const you constantly have something to do, whether it's a car meet, whether it's a track day, uh, whether it's a car show, whether it's SEMA, right, a trade show. Um, and there are you know, cars and coffee. They don't even have to have, you know, big uh, meets or cruises. Um, I mean, these are happening every weekend at least here in socal i know we're spoiled uh but these are happening every weekend year round so there's no reason um you know to not you know make quality friends that you know you can help and can help you um as well you know that's really all it's about right so reach out to that dude you know you you go to cars and coffee you see a dude with you know the same civic that you have and he's got a few other parts on that Go spark up a conversation. Ask him, you know, what led to him do to do that to his car. Where can you get those parts? What would he recommend? Because um, we love having those conversations and making those friends. That's really what it's about. Um, then they go on to a few more, and I think we're sort of sub rules. Broaden your horizons. Right, being friends with a wide range of car enthusiasts allow you to experience things you might have never thought possible. 
Um, and and I, I think that and they wrote that. And I think that is very, very true beyond sort of what you own and the projects that you have, but also including the projects that you have and, and, and things, the hobbies that you get into. It's sort of contagious in that way and sort of goes back to what I was talking about earlier in that um, I don't know that I would have had the cars that I have now had it not been for the community of people that I've met through this podcast, through my interest in cars, through going to drive, through going to the track, through NASA, through Beamer Challenge. Um it sort of motivates you in your own hobby. It motivated me to really dive into working on my car for myself to make sure that I can, uh, you know, turn every bolt in a car. And therefore, I am now more comfortable owning a bunch of different cars because I'm not going through the expense of taking it to a shop every time. You know, I might every once in a while, I might have an issue, whatever it may be. It hasn't happened yet, but I might. I'll go to a shop. I think, uh, you know, there are plenty of great shops out here uh, to take a car to. But if you can work on it yourself, one, you know if it's been done and if it's been done right or if it's been done wrong. Right. But, you know, because you're the one that's doing the wrenching. And then two, the reduced cost of that is immense. I mean, especially for my cars, FCP Euro has, and this is not a, I, I'm not sponsored. I just think it's something that can help a lot of people. They have free lifetime replacement on their parts. Meaning if you use their parts to fix up your cars, the next time you have to replace that item, you can just send it back and they will send you a new one. I have done this with Hawk pads because they sell Hawk pads. I've uh, done it with rotors. I've sent back oil and they took it, uh, sensors. I mean, you name it. I I've done it with FCP, FCP Euro. It's kept my costs low. And in some cases, not all the time though, but in some cases, uh, the part is a little bit more expensive. But then, you know, if it's a wear item or if it's an item that you're going to uh, replace frequently, I think it's worth it. Otherwise, you might want to go with the cheaper thing. We don't expect to replace it. Uh, anytime soon um uh, but it's it's a cool option to have but anyway um i digress uh broaden your horizons now the one thing i don't agree with uh when they talked about in the article is that uh thanks to people that he's met right the the writers met they've had the pleasure of driving everything from a 1914 packard to a one-off mid-70s coach-built italian show car based on a honda civic um, but he did go on, go on to mention that he also shared his car. Um, I don't know how I'd feel. I mean, I know I definitely have a circle of people that I, that I've swapped cars with, right? They've driven my cars. I'll drive their cars or we need to go pick something up or need to drop something off. And they want me to drive one of their cars have definitely done that. But I don't know that I'd suggest to somebody, um, you know, broaden your horizons, make, uh, you know, make your range of car enthusiasm wider and make more friends so you can drive more cars. I guess it's true, but I don't know that I've ever thought of it that way. But definitely broaden your horizons. You know, don't limit yourself to one make, one model. Uh, whatever you know, and I, I, I say this as you know, I'm hoarding uh 90s shit boxes in my driveway um but it's i think it's if i had the means to have a variety of different cars i would i think right now i'm just focused on what i can do and what cars i can work on i think i screwed myself by getting special tools uh for you know bmw special tools because now i sort of feel the need to get more bmws so i can get my money's worth out of these tools and the last thing um, they mentioned is don't never stop learning and don't get it over your head. So this is uh, definitely never stop learning. Um, this uh, I turned I, I turned this whole automotive experience into a multi effort sort of growth program for myself. 
Um, yeah, I enjoy talking about cars. You know, I enjoy being on a microphone. I enjoy, I enjoy trying to entertain. Um, you know, it's fun to do the IG thing and, and it's fun to be at the track and drive and, and all those things. Um, that's sort of, it's the sort of the first level of getting into an interest, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean I want to be on a mic about it or, you know, learn how to create content or learn how to edit video, learn how to write scripts. Um, but I decided to take that on because I knew that that would also help me professionally. And so in that way, I've learned basically all the things that I mentioned and more, right? Running audio, editing audio, video, writing scripts, uh, you know, research, um, writing articles, uh, website design, um, a variety of different video editing tools, right? How to do a bunch of different things that I didn't think I could do. Learning about camera equipment and microphone equipment and how things work with each other, how to start a business. All that came from cars. Even starting a coffee business came from cars. And I think that is because I definitely, definitely am a believer that you should never, ever stop learning. But I also always like to pair that in line with don't get in over your head. You know, just because you should never stop learning doesn't mean that you should keep your foot on the gas full throttle all the time. Take a break, work in small chunks, eventually, you know, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine months later, you're going to look back at the small chunks that you set and it's going to be, you've accomplished so much. So take frequent breaks, chill the fuck out. You're not going to change the world overnight, but you will at small steps. Like for example, this year, um, you know, I went and started doing this podcast stuff alone um, because the uh, Randy, who I did it with previously, decided to move on to different things. We're like, cool. So we're sort of pivoting, making a new plan for the year. I said I was going to focus on content um, and I was focused on getting the podcast back up and figuring out my workflow for guests and how to do the individual podcast, when to, rele when to release what. And I sort of figured that all out. Now I'm at the end of a three-month period at this point. And I am way more comfortable with everything I'm doing. I can start introducing new things over the next three months and learning new things and going back to car shows and uh, focusing on driving a little more. I bought another car that I, I, it's definitely a project. I'm going to start learning more on that. Um, and then my racing journey, which continues and continues to evolve. Um, and it looks like I'm going to be in Vegas uh, in the middle of next month uh, to drive. But yeah, all that to say... You know, in a very, very long way, never stop learning. Don't get in over your head. And I absolutely agree with Haggerty on this. Um, it's And also never stop teaching. Um, obviously, don't be like a pest to people and like you're just, you know, constantly talking about uh, things unsolicited. But, you know, be open to people asking you questions. I think that's how we help each other, right? We have conversations about how to do this and how to do that and if you have any questions about anything that I mentioned today that I've learned along, you know, the last four years, feel free to reach out. I would love to have a conversation about starting your journey in something or or maybe you're stuck somewhere or you're, you're finally decided to uh, register your own business and start selling things or you want to start a podcast or you need some video editing software stuff that, you know, that I might be able to help with. Whatever it may be, it doesn't have to be cars, but it is cars. If it is cars... It's actually better. Let's get into our next headline. Porsche GT3 meet Mustang GT3. So the Ford CEO teased the idea of a street-legal Mustang GT3 variant. So Ford CEO Jim Farley tweeted a video of the Mustang GT3 doing some, t some testing at Sebring. A few hours later, he retweeted that same tweet with, quest with a question, should we make a road version? 
Now, this is definitely Twitter, right? It's not like, you know, any uh, reliable press. But it is straight from the CEO. So if he's asking and enough people answer, it might be a possibility that they actually do this. Now, Ford did announce that the Dark Horse R would be coming, uh, but the Mustang GT3 would be something entirely different. Uh, the Mustang GT3 currently being developed to compete is is actually currently being developed to compete in the 2024 season of World Endurance Championships GT class. Um, and that one currently has a modified version of the 5-liter Coyote V8 um, that is uh, being developed with M Sport. And then they have a rear-mounted transaxle gearbox, front and rear double wishbone suspension, and a complete carbon fiber body. That carbon fiber body is probably going to be the first thing to go if they do this Mustang GT3. I imagine that we'll do some carbon, but not a full carbon body unless they expect to sell this car for a lot of money, which is possible. Maybe they'll have like a carbon fiber option version. That's the most expensive one. It's unlikely that I would buy one anyway. If they came out with the Mustang GT3, I would imagine it'd be a six-figure car regardless of how they build it. But it's cool to think that this is still a possible idea, right? Considering EV is on the horizon and all these emission concerns really keep our our race cars from breathing properly. Um, it looks like there might still be an option uh, for these OEMs to build these fun race cars straight from the factory that we can drive on the street. It'd be super cool. Uh, to have a Mustang GT3. These things look crazy. And Ford has parter, partnered with Multimatic to develop the GT3, and they were also they also have been partnered on the Mustang GT4, which you can already see on the Multimatic website. Now, the GT4 is a much tamer version of you would expect the GT3, but it sort of gives you an idea of the direction that they would go with it. Now, the, the GT4 that they developed with Multimatic is not a road-legal version. It is really an off-road-use-only car. Uh, but from his question, it looks like there's potential, if there's enough interest, there's potential that we could see a Mustang GT3 coming out on the, on the road, much like Porsche's GT3s. Um, but, you know, Porsche still carries a little more prestige. Into our next headline, whenever you're buying a new car... Please make sure you're checking all the VINs. A North Carolina man bought a $68,000 Maserati on Carvana for his wife. And it turned out to be stolen. He surprised his wife with the used Maserati for her birthday and a few months later found out it was a stolen car. Carvana said someone had taken sophisticated criminal steps to steal and alter the vehicle, and they are taking all necessary steps to make it right for this customer. You know what those sophisticated steps were? The couple took their car to be serviced at a local Maserati dealership and were told that the VIN on the car, window, and door didn't match and concluded that the car was actually a stolen 2017 Maserati. The car was sold as a 2020. A 2020 Maserati SUV. And it was actually a 2017 version of that SUV. And they, the dealership found that out just by checking the VINs on the car. And I know there's been a lot of news about Carvana really just churning these cars. They buy the cars or whatever. They don't even put them through real inspections. They clean them up a little bit on the outside and put them up for sale. And then they're just churning and churning and churning cars. Um, and this tends to support that. Police seized and impounded the car after the man provided proof that he bought the car from Carvana. And Carvana is saying that until they get the car back, they can't do anything for the customer. So the North Carolina man decided to sue Carvana for $1 million and an apology 
in hopes that they will take steps to prevent this from happening in the future. But Carvana has made an offer. They offered to refund the money that he has paid so far and use it and also the option to use it on a different car. And they threw an extra thousand on top of that for good measure. <laughs> an extra thousand dollars. That's so insulting, right? Like they sold you <laughs> they sold you a stolen car and Really, all they offer you is your money back to use on another car that you're probably going to think is stolen and $1,000 on top of that. Now, I will say the the million dollars that the the man is asking for, I don't know, it's a bit of a stretch on $68,000. And, I mean, they are trying to make him whole again, so it's kind of hard to think, like, I kind of get it right at wasting your time and going to the trouble of the police and all that. Uh, luckily, they found out at a dealership. Who knows when they would have found out? Um, like, I don't know, say the, say they were able to service their cars by themselves, like do an oil change. Just didn't know the, the whole VIN thing or didn't care to look. It wouldn't be until the car, something happened to the car that they would have found out. Which for a Maserati, it probably would have happened soon. It's probably what took him there anyway. Uh, it doesn't really mention if they were there to get the car serviced or um, or what specifically went on in the service, if they had any issues to fix. But the Mar Maserati dealership definitely told them that it was a stolen 2017 Maserati. Um, what do you think? Like, what would you think? Is it fair with what Carvana's doing about giving him his money back and a thousand on top of that for his troubles? Or should the man continue to sue? He did mention that part of this, although, of course, he wants that one million. He did mention that a big part of him suing is making sure that Carvana puts things in place that would prevent this from happening again. And really, the thing that needs to take place are the inspections. If that would have happened, then this wouldn't have been a problem. They wouldn't have bought that car. Uh, but somebody messed with the VINs and sold Carvana a car. Now, there's a record of this, though, so I don't know that that is a, a smart move or if that person's going to get away with it because now Carvana has all this person's information unless they, like, withdrew those whatever, you know, withdrew the 68000 that they got for the Maserati. Carvana probably paid them, let's say, fifty. So then the, whoever sold them the stolen car withdrew that 50000 from their bank and went where? Where are they going to live for fifty on fifty thousand for the rest of their lives? I don't know. They might not catch them, but it's not going to last very long, and there'll probably be another scam on the way. But that's crazy. Carvana needs to start checking their cars a little better. I bought a car from Carvana. Um, I did check the VINs. I haven't had any issues, but so many of these stories come out, and I'm like, mm, Carvana's getting really sketch. I don't even think CarMax had this bad uh, a PR. But let's get into our last headline. Donut Media covered Porsche's e-fuel, but they got some things wrong. They actually went to the plant in Chile, um, which is really cool. It's literally at the bottom tip of South America. Um, but it's pretty cool that they got to visit, and they actually got to use the e-fuel. And the e-fuel is made by taking hydrogen out of water and carbon out of carbon dioxide, from the atmosphere in the video um they claim that it's 40 dollars a gallon but this is currently just a general estimate that even i think i've been guilty of a few months ago um around what that would cost but if you think about it more one no price has been discussed by porsche yet or any of these companies so this is a wild assumption that it's going to be $40 a gallon, which is very dangerous. And it is a niche fuel option, um, and it still might be more efficient to use electric cars, which will drive the price up. But at $40 a, ga a gallon, that's not a viable option for most of the market. Uh, you know, in, in a weekend, you know, in a day at the track, I'll do 12 gallons. 
if that's $40, do some quick math, 4 times 12, uh, 48, 400, no, $4,200, no, <laughs> that's, that's all wrong, uh, doing math right now, so it's $40 a gallon, 12 gallons, $480, that's crazy, that is crazy, that's so much money, on a track weekend. That's not going to work. It would be like a thousand. It would be like a thousand dollars in gas. On a weekend. Maybe even more than that. Especially if you're doing like racing. It just doesn't make sense. Uh, it, $40 a gallon is not going to. It's going to be more expensive. Right? Like. It's not going to be $3 a gallon for you. Most the people in the United States or, you know, four or five dollars a gallon if you're in California. But I also don't expect 40, maybe 10. Right. Maybe like what specialty fuels would cost now. Uh, 10 to 15 a gallon. I could see maybe. Uh, but at forty dollars a gallon, I mean, you would probably see. I mean, you'd see a lot less drivers. It would be like a cars and coffee treat at $40. I don't know. At $40 a gallon. That's wild, man. That just would not work. So yeah, don't take this as truth. I think, um, it is possible that these companies want to establish $40 a gallon as a bit of an anchor. So once they're ready to sell it, they can get close to it or as close to it as possible. But there's no way that this becomes a viable option at $40, $40 a gallon. There's just no way. Um, they wouldn't sell enough of it to warrant continuing to make it at $40 a gallon. Maybe 10 Even that's kind of pushing it. But we'll see. I mean, if more competition comes out in this space and there are more companies doing this, that'll drive the prices down. There's still a long way from us completely, uh, you know, take taking carbon dioxide out of the air and making gas for our cars. But it's pretty cool that this is actually a, uh, the, probably the cleanest option out there in terms of fuels. Cause you're essentially taking the carbons that your car is putting out and then turning those back into fuel and putting them back in the car. Um, that's pretty cool, but just not $40 a gallon. Another thing that they actually mentioned, and I'm a, I'm going to be a Dwight Schrute on this one. Um, they mentioned that crude oil comes from dinosaurs. This is a common myth. It does not come from dinosaurs. It actually comes from plankton. Uh, you know, the guy from the chum bucket and SpongeBob. So the plankton that lived, died, and sank to the bottom of the ocean um, is actually what turns into the oil and natural gas that we use currently. So microbes consume some of the dead plankton. There's a chemical reaction, and that turns into a different sub substance called kerogen, which then transforms into hydrocarbons. Um, and we know that as crude oil, um, if there's enough heat in the area, it actually becomes natural gas also. And that's why you see a lot of uh, oil rigs out in the ocean because that's where most of the oil is due to most of the plankton um, that was out there. Now, there's a small percentage that does come from dinosaurs. I'll say that. Uh, but uh, it's definitely a myth in terms of how big that percentage is. It's mostly from plankton, which is crazy to think about. And those are your headlines for the week. Now, let's get into our segment. And we answer the question, why did speedometers in the 80s only go 85 miles per hour? They didn't invent speed until 1990. That's not right. Marty McFly got to 88 in the DeLorean, but have you seen a DeLorean speedometer? 85. Go look it up. Go look up DeLorean speedometer right now, and like all the searches that come up on the Google Images, you'll see everything stops at 85. So it turns out that the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration 
thought you'd be safer if you couldn't see past 85 on the speedometer. <laughs> I mean, I guess you got to try what you can try. Uh, but yeah, no way not seeing the speedometer move past 85 um, would slow me down. Right. I mean, I think most of the time I'm not looking at the speedometer, um, you know, when I'm driving, unless I'm feeling like I'm going too fast, then I'll glance down. So, but in 1979, they made it a law that required speedometers to have a maximum of 85 mile per hour uh, written on it. That's like, that's the max that the speedometer can go. Uh, no one's allowed to see past that. And the exact words of the law were, no speedometer shall have graduations or numerical values for speeds greater than 140 kilo kilometers per hour and 85 miles per hour and shall not otherwise indicate such speeds. As a result of this law, right, cars from 19, the 1980s um, have a max of 85 on their speedometers despite being able to go much faster at the time. There are plenty of cars uh, from the 1980s on um, that can go much faster than 85. I would say all the cars can go faster than 85, but they didn't want that to read. And of course, as soon as you start instituting these laws, they're gonna, there are going to be car manufacturers that get a little creative. Ford got creative with the uh, Mustang SVO, which marked 85 as the max, but they put the 85 about halfway and then continued on the speedometer with tick marks, just no numbers. It was completely unnumbered check marks that continued for the second half of the dial. But this actually might have been illegal. It's weird that there wasn't really any pushback by the NHTSA um, on, on this speedometer because in the law, it says no graduations, right? The graduations would be those tech, tech marks, tick marks. So technically, it was illegal, but they got away with it. Um, now, Ferrari got a little more creative. They took it a step further. In the 1979 308 GTB, um, they actually put a red line. They did the same thing with the 85 sort of a little off-center on the dial. And then the remainder of the dial, they put a solid red line with no graduations, no indication, just a red line that says, hey, you're past what your government's limit has been set to. Um, so we're not going to put any numbers here. So I think they found a actual legal workaround, um, whereas Ford didn't really follow the law how it was stated and pretty blatant. It was a pretty blatant cross of line, but we never really heard anything, any issues about that. Maybe it's because the Mustang SVO didn't sell in large volumes, uh, but there really wasn't a lot of noise about it, but it wouldn't matter because literally two and a half years later, the NHTSA revoked that standard and that eliminated uh, speedometer and odometer rules because the NHTSA decided after two and a half years that, quote, unlikely to yield significant safety benefits. Um, I couldn't find anything on how they decided this. I have a feeling they just didn't want to enforce it. I mean, there really isn't a lot of safety benefits to setting it at 85. Really, there's no point in that. Um, and the law came and went so suddenly that some manufacturers couldn't even adjust in time. In 1984, the Camaro Berlinetta had a digital speedometer that literally flashed at you when you went past 85. There was nothing at that. So e there were even cars in the 80s affected after 83 when the law actually was revoked. I think it was in March of 1983, um, even making cars making it to 1984, 1985. So that is why there are plenty of cars in the 80s that only went to 85 miles per hour. And now I'm curious, like I'm on a hunting spree of trying to find out all the cars 
that have 85. I even got to the point where I'm like, ooh, it'd be cool to own a car that has an 85 limit or like some sort of trick. I might just get like a speedometer. I don't need another car. Who really needs another car, right? But I, I, I would be interested in getting a speedometer, maybe just a dial. I don't know, something. I need a memento of this short period in the 80s where the government said, hey, we're going to put 85 on this dial and everyone's going to be safe. No one's going to cross the line anymore because they, they're going to think they can't go faster than that. I want to be in that. I want to be in that boardroom, right? When they, when they decided like, hey, you know, you know what would keep people safe? Not letting their speedometers go, let them know how fast they're going after 85 miles per hour. That's going to slow them down. And why 85, right? Are they saying like 85, someone's going to stretch to like 95 and think they're going 140, so they're going to step out of it? Nah. I think if you're going 95, you're probably looking for that 100 number, right? The first time hit you hit 100, and then the first time you max out a car. On closed circuit roads only of course and that is your podcast you can find us at 91octane.com all letters no numbers also like and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast follow us on instagram at 91octane also engage with us there dm us comment share reshare it all helps thank you if you want to send us any emails info at 91octane.com Now we'll leave you with this. If you are yourself in the car world, you're going to eventually find your tribe. And that moment that you're probably chasing where you're in a garage with your homies, drinking a beer, working on your car, that's going to happen. Don't force it. Be cool. Enjoy the car world. Enjoy your cars. Go meet up at Cars and Coffees. Take it to the track. Be safe. Good night.